0: head injuries and social ills. Can we help these patients? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and joining me today is Dr. Wayne Gordon, who is the Jack Nash Professor in the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City. Dr. Gordon is a Ph.D. psychologist and professor of rehabilitation medicine and psychiatry at Mount Sinai. He has written extensively on the psychiatric and social challenges following traumatic brain injury. Today we're going to be talking about head injuries and social ills and whether we can help these patients. Dr. Gordon, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Wayne, maybe before we get into this issue, could you share with us a little bit about your own scientific background and how you got interested in this line of research?
1: Well, I've been doing this work with people with brain injuries for more than 40 years. As when I graduated college, I was able to get a job on a grant at the Rusk Institute in New York City, which was the first project on whether or not people with brain injuries could relearn cognitive skills. So that was in 1966. I was able to work full-time and go to graduate school full-time in order to maintain my deferment and not go to Vietnam.
0: And so this has been your life's work ever since? That's correct. Your group has done a lot of research about hidden head trauma, unidentified traumatic brain injury, and you've been quoted as saying this is a major source of social and uh, vocational failure. Could you give us a couple of uh, areas of your research that leads you to believe that?
1: We did a screening with uh, over 800 folks who were entering substance abuse programs in New York State and found that uh, more than 50% of them had sustained a brain injury at some point in their past. When we looked at this data to see the consequences of the brain injury, we saw that those with the brain injuries had more admissions to the substance abuse programs and had more complex psychiatric diagnoses so they were more difficult to treat and were treatment failures because of their multiple admissions. So they were recycling through the program.
0: I understand from your research that other groups of patients in other situations, you found similarly unrecognized a hidden trauma, hidden head trauma as an issue.
1: That's correct. We found it in the homeless. And in addition, in regular schools here in New York City, we did some screening and we found that Uh, 10% of the kids we screened in regular classrooms had an unidentified brain injury.
0: That's impressive numbers. Well, can't help but think that a lot of this talks to prevention issues, but if we get to the point where we have patients who have various social or psychiatric challenges as a result of brain injuries, what's your thinking currently about therapeutic approaches to helping them, whether adults or kids? Should we be treating them differently than we are now? And if so, how?
1: Well, given the large number of unidentified, most of them aren't treated. Many of those who identified really can't get the services they need because insurance companies won't pay for it. So for the very few who are able to get the services they need, there's sufficient evidence to show that cognitive rehabilitation is an effective intervention.
0: If you have an adult who's out there in the real world but suffering and has the ability to access the appropriate resources, what kinds of professionals would be working with them? How long might it take? How long is it? I don't know if there is such a thing as a typical treatment, but... Could you maybe describe some hypothetical patients and what their results have been?
1: Sure. Uh, more than likely, they'd be working with a neuropsychologist, speech pathologist, occupational therapist, or even a physical therapist. Treatment would range from five days a week for several hours for several months or less intensively for just a couple of days a week for a few hours a week for a couple months. I think the dosing of how much is needed or what's too little or what's too much we still really don't have an idea about and so that oftentimes people require extensive periods of treatment.
0: At your facility at Mount Sinai, you were in the rehabilitation and psychiatric area Are they inpatient, outpatient, both?
1: Well, we have an inpatient and an outpatient program. Most of the work that I do is with people who are outpatients.
0: I see. And what kind of patient population is able to access those services in terms of numbers? How many a month or how many a year? Do you have any idea?
1: Well, to our inpatient TBI program, We admit somewhere between 120 and 160 people a year. Their typical length of stay is something over a month. Some of them come in in comas. Most of them don't, but we do admit folks in coma. There are a large number of people in our outpatient programs, and we have three essentially different day treatment programs that vary in intensity and by severity of injury. And folks can be in those programs for anywhere from three months, three days a week, to every day for six to 12 months.
0: You. Just tuned in. You're listening to the Clinicians Roundtable on Reach MD, XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. Wayne Gordon. We're talking about head injuries and social ills. Can we help these patients? I sense from some of your comments that there is a frustration that more people can't be helped, that there's obviously limited resources in everybody's budgets. What kind of resources are available to patients who are not well-insured? I guess what's your message to physicians who don't have access to the kind of uh, programs that you have?
1: Well, I think uh, by the uninsured, you mean those with Medicaid.
0: Yeah, right.
1: For those uninsured, getting services like for any kind of medical care is very difficult because somebody needs to pay the bill. Some of our programs here are research programs so that we don't charge people for participating or for the care, the treatment they get but then they need to be able to afford to live in New York City for a period of time during treatment.
0: Right, which is not so cheap.
1: Which is also not cheap. I think some of the strategies that people need to learn sometimes can be gotten off the Internet and can be self-taught, whether they would be as effective as those that people would be getting from coming here or some other place that has a brain injury program remains to be seen, but something's better than nothing.
0: You mentioned that, uh, obviously, you have some research grants available to work from. Um, has it been your experience over the years that better funding is available for these kinds of efforts, or is it still problematic?
1: Funding is almost non-existent.
0: Really? Okay. Well, that makes that kind of easy. From a practical point of view, we talked about finding out about histories of people and, and their brain injuries. If they are, as we headed up the interview, long forgotten, do you get this information from uh, patients' history, from family history, from medical records, from imaging, from neuropsych testing? How do you go about determining whether they...
1: When somebody is coming in for a face-to-face and I'm doing an initial interview, obviously it's done by an intensive interview history-taking, where you're, you just don't ask somebody if they've ever had a blow to the head and been dazed and confused. Because more than likely they won't recall that event where they fell on their head in the playground. So you really need to intensively interview somebody about their history. So, for example, I was seeing somebody the other day who was a graduate student who had multiple concussions in school as an athlete and did very well in college, is in graduate school. And basically, what it can was now on leave because this person was having difficulty in school. Well, it was clear that he had been significantly concussed while playing athletics. And somebody fell on top of him and broke the socket of their eye. And he spent the day in the nurse's office confused. Okay. Yet he was able to go on and function because he learned everything he could by being self-taught. In other words, he never went to class. He taught himself everything. As learning becomes more demanding and you need then to take internships and practice what you've learned in a real-world environment and there are demands on your time, he couldn't function under those circumstances. Hmm.
0: You mentioned the need for appropriate, I believe you said intensive history taking. Would you have any advice for uh, practicing clinicians out there either with their general population or with specific symptom Patients that uh, come to them with, you know, headaches, can't concentrate, not working right, life isn't going well. I mean, is it significant enough and frequent enough that these kinds of questions about those kinds of histories should be a regular part of our intake?
1: There's no question about it because, for example, a child can be concussed at a young age and may not run into difficulties until many, many years later because essentially children grow into their impairment.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: Basically, you'll see children beginning to fail because they're, as learning becomes complex, they need to draw on the resources that are no longer there because of the cognitive impairment. Okay, so that it's not until you begin to have more demands on your memory, on your reasoning, on your processing speed that you begin to see that the challenges exist. So they may not be there for the initial years of learning, but the problems begin to emerge in middle school and high school.
0: And if you're a practicing internist or a family practitioner out there and you get an inkling for whatever reason that old traumatic brain injury is an issue, what should they be doing? Should they be making a neurology referral? Should they be making a psychological referral, psychiatric?
1: I think the first thing is to not to discount the concussion. There are too many people who basically discount the concussion because they say, well, you're going to get better. The symptoms will resolve. Well, true, the immediate symptoms will resolve. But even for somebody who's an adult, you're not going to know that you have memory problems or that you can't function at work, you know, two days after your injury. It's not until you begin to pick up the fabric of life do you begin to see that you can't do what you used to be able to do. And you may not want to acknowledge that initially until you really begin to get into trouble. The other thing I think would be very important is that a neuropsychological evaluation really could aid in making the differential diagnosis.
0: I imagine you probably have some thoughts about uh, professional athletes who have multiple concussions and go back to work, go back to their jobs. Probably not a good idea.
1: Not a good idea. I think in uh, high school sports, we know that about 50% of their injuries okay, are concussions. I think in the NFL, you see a a large number of concussions. I think once you've had one concussion, the re-injury rate is 12%. So you become at a greater risk over time. Our brain is our most powerful product, and we need to do everything we can to try to protect it.
0: Those are good words to end on. My thanks to Dr. Wayne Gordon for being our guest. We've been talking about head injuries and social ills and how we can help uh, patients with those issues. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at reachmd.com. Register with promo code radio and receive six months free streaming for your home or office. Thanks for listening.